But sometimes it's the story the body's holding at a specific place that we are moving. That maybe it's the place that that memory of a trauma is being held or that memory of the most exciting time that you've ever had. We don't only hold certain stories in our body, we hold many. Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation-teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace. We're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Hi, Sherry. Good hey, morning. Teresa. Okay, so here we go with our third episode leading up to Earth Day. So we're talking about Earth Day or Earth in relation to the koshas. And today is Manamaya Kosha. This is our psycho-emotional body, it's our mind and our thoughts, our emotional feeling body. And maybe it needs to be a little fluid as we go through because the element is water. And as we were coming on, Sherry and I were just talking about maybe not having as much sleep as we would have liked to have had last night for various reasons. And this idea that we're going to talk about mind and the emotional body when we both feel just a ton bit off today from lack of sleep. Yeah, I have to say I feel very vulnerable and thin-skinned today because, you know, lack of sleep, lack of food, these are the things that kind of bring up the emotional pieces that might otherwise find some, some homeostasis and find some space to kind of just be. But today, it's, it's interesting, yeah, that we're talking about the mind. And I, I feel that my mind is about, it's operating at Half throttle, is that a thing? Is throttle a thing? I don't even know. But you know, I still have kids living in the house and when they're not feeling well, the chance to be a mommy at this point, just, it was interesting because I even thought about today's episode last night when I got up and I was with one of my kids as she was not feeling well. And I was thinking about the, the feeling that it brought up because it's been a long time. I have teenagers, I've one out of the house already. And the feeling the emotional, the memory, all of the things about those early days when the kids would get up and they weren't well. And it's like, dun, 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 dun. Here comes mom with her superhero cape on to, you know, to be present. But as you turn into teenagers, you, there's less of that, you know? And so there was a feeling memory of being there with her. And as tired as I was, and as much as my mind was like, oh, please just tell me I can go back to bed. <laughs> like that was the inner, the inner dialogue. There was a physical experience that I was having that felt like I don't have many more years left of this. I don't have much more time. So if I get to to see what I'm made of in the middle of the night because a kid needs me, I'm going to fucking be there. And that feels into this Manamaya Kosha for me, at least because, you know, I was sort of thinking about it anyway. And there it was. Memory. What a perfect story to kind of give us the reminder. You said with a lack of food and a lack of sleep. So this perfect story to, as a reminder that the body, the mind, the emotions, the koshas are not separate. And even though we're having the conversations through very specific lenses and trying to, you know, hone in and stay focused on just Manamaya Kosha, none of the layers of our being can be separated in much the same way that none of the layers of the earth can be separated. Our water is dependent on our trees and our snow and the earth being hydrated. Our food is dependent on 
nature, doing what nature does, which is providing rich soil based on how we treat it and having enough water coming through our systems to grow our food and making sure that our air is clean so that what comes into our body, going back to pranamaya kosha from last week. So there is no separation between our being, nor is there a separation from what we are looking at in our lens of the koshas through the lens of earth in our preparation for our Earth Day celebrations. And, you know, this idea of manamaya, the mind, that it's a mindset to give a shit about the earth. It's a mindset to know that we're connected inextricably to the cycles and the nature of things as they're going. And if you've never considered that, then it's hard to even know that. And that mind piece, you know, just it's creative. I, the earth is inspiring. I mean, how many times have we walked out and just stood in awe of a tree that was just doing something funky or, you know, having three different trees growing out of the same space or, you know, looking at an anomaly in winter where there's some kind of whatever it is, there's this sense of like poets react to that, you know, painters, you know, whatever your art is, whether and it could be anatomy, like seeing our bones in the trees and seeing our actual physical forms reflected in the the bones of nature. You know, that whatever it is that we we can't we can't compartmentalize, but we do tend to try to separate things, but then that's just a lost cause because then we're talking about, you know, the soil again and we're talking about the energy of the earth and then we're looking at it and trying to, you know, have it make some kind of sense. Yeah. Sense. I love senses. It. Senses. We're going there. Yes. <laughs> we're going right to those senses. I love that you said the bones of the trees and the bones that are out there. You know, we are recording today is March 28th. And as you know, if you've been listening, we're in Pennsylvania. And I went out to Oxima this morning and the trees in my neighborhood have just opened with these tiny, beautiful white and pink flowers. The forsythia are in bloom with this vibrant yellow. Daffodils are out. And it reminded me of how much our senses take in our environment. And it's through the senses that we can experience our emotions, where our mind becomes active. It is um, fascinating, and that isn't even a big enough word, just how many pieces of data we take in, in a simple stepping outside for a couple of minutes, from listening with our ears to the bird song, to watching what has come into bloom and the little bits of plant life that are poking up through the earth to the sensation beneath the feet of touch as each one of my feet touches the earth or the temperature of the air touches my skin. And, you know, sometimes I have to stop and say, well, what am I tasting out here? And in that, I can still say that smell and taste are so integrated that maybe it's the lingering coffee I had to give me enough energy to go up. Or maybe it's the flavor where we can expand taste into flavor. But we live in a sensorial world and we take in the world through our senses. And I'm going to be quiet, let you respond, but then I'm going to walk into, you know, a book that I love that really, really talks much about this. Okay, and this little little blurb that I just was inspired by what you just said, and it was a memory. It was a memory that came into my head, but gave me a feeling. When I was younger and I used to go to overnight camp and my parents would pick me up from the bus and then we would drive back to my childhood home, there was a feeling in the air. There was a smell in that late summer air that always implied or gave me the feeling of, oh, this is the end of summer. School is coming. Like this is the end of this amazing adventure I've just had. And there's still a little bit of time left. There's still, you know, some space. All of these stories and narratives that come up from that one experience of smelling the late summer air. And I remember I can just right now even feel myself getting out of the car and closing the door yeah. and having that sense of endings moving into beginnings, even though I didn't frame it that way then. And so this very powerful, I know that I, I didn't know nothing about the brain. I mean, I'm just going off on a limb here, but I understand that the sense of smell, the receptors of that in the brain are very close in proximity 
to the sensors for memory, which is mm. why smell is such a potent way to access memory. But, you know, if you know something more specific out there and you want to give us a shout out and tell us something real and not something kind of, you know, in the ethers of no sleep, let us know. Yeah. I know that I don't know anything more about location in the brain, so we'll leave that question hanging. But I do know that I've read many times that scent, the sense of scent is one of those closest to recalling memories. It's like walking into your family home with a dinner that you use for any celebration where everybody gets together. And we all have different celebrations and different types of meals. But you can walk into a completely random place and have that scent that is not your family home or the people that you celebrate this meal with. And you're right back there at the dinner table with whomever you would be in your memory. So I call it holiday house. Holiday if I walk house. In, if someone has cooking food or something in their home and I walk in, and go, it smells like holiday house. You know, yeah. and it doesn't matter, like you said, what the food is. There's that feeling of the memory is bigger than that. Very cool. Yeah, you're you're talking about you know, I don't know you jumped back into that memory. It's kind of like the first day of school. You were talking about the scent. For me, the first day of school was I would get up and we would walk to the bus and the air was colder. It was cool. It was a September morning. And I remember thinking, wow, how did the weather change from yesterday to today that today feels like school and yesterday didn't? And, you know, thinking back and sharing this story when you when I was thinking about it while you were talking, it occurred to me, it's probably because I was up like two hours earlier than I usually did. Not that the weather had changed so drastically, but it was that cool day that I would, would tap into, wow, it's first day of school weather. Right. And you know, I just saw a friend of mine posted something the other day. She lives in Minnesota and I have a lot of family in Minnesota. And they always said, there's no such thing as weather that's too cold. It's just not enough clothes. But she said she put two pictures up. She was like, when it's 50 degrees in spring and when it's 50 degrees in winter, when it's 50 degrees in or in fall, when it's 50 degrees in fall, she's got a cute little snow hat on and her little vest and, you know, warmer clothes. But when it's 50 degrees in, you know, in spring or just like early spring, late winter, it's like you're in shorts and a tank top. So the perception of, you know, it's the same degree. It's like a pound of feathers or a pound of, of you know, steel. Still a pound, that but it's, it, you know. Um, so the mind, and we've already introduced the idea that the senses are how we experience the world. And so I'm just, I want to start with just reading. And this is a review of the book, which will be in the show notes. It's called The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And I found this review by Thomas Berry, and he is the author of a book called The Dream of Earth. And I, it just really spoke to me, so I'm going to share it with you. The outer world of nature is what awakens our inner world of all of its capacities for understanding, affection, and aesthetic appreciation. The wind, the rain, the mountains and rivers, the woodlands and meadows, and all their inhabitants. We need these perhaps even more than our psyche, than for our physical survival. This is so important where he's talking about all of this interaction with nature, which is one of the things that I also took away from David Ibram's book, is that we not only have this physical survival that we need to do by being out in nature, but it speaks directly to Manamaya Kosha, to our, our psyche and our emotional well-being to be able to spend time in peaceful places, whatever you call that peaceful place. Of course, he goes to like the extremes of the peaceful place, but the peaceful place might be the neighborhood park, your own backyard, you know, a tree out in the middle of Brooklyn where there maybe there isn't so much open, the expansive tree. space. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that it is how important what he took out of the book was how important nature was not only to our physical being and the earth to our physical being, but to our emotional and mental and our psyche. I totally believe that. I feel like the earth holds so much for us and it gives us what we need. You know, like it's if we were to just take what we needed, that would also be a, a good thing. 
I know you love maps. And in preparation, I found this thing that memory is a map, that memories can serve as a map guiding us through life challenges, much like how maps help us navigate the earth's terrain. That's from Forbes magazine. You know, it's not from yoga journal or from, you know, and something it's from Forbes. You know, memory is a map. And, you know, I, my husband would laugh that I'm even talking about maps because I don't do maps. It's, you know, I, I could never even fold them, let alone read them. So, uh, <laughs> but it maps in the context of what we talk about, you know, it's really interesting and it gives a whole new perspective and appreciation for actual cartographers and maps who are creating these, you know, things that we can navigate this world. So the things, the, the things that we teach in terms of yoga and meditation and pranayama and all of the, the practices and rituals that we do in some way are to tap this, this memory, to tap this earth, to tap this, you know, mindset. You know, when we, I don't know about you, but I think of mind and I think, you know, very sort of linear. It's mind, it's thought, it's sort of cut and dry. But all of the information here implies that it's also extremely creative. And that it's extremely, you know, inspiring for the the poets and the painters and the artists and the lovers and all of that. So I think, and again, this is my half mind speaking, but I seem to recall hearing at one point, anecdotal, anecdotal, that the Sanskrit word for heart was the same as mind. That there's, you know, that they're inextricably connected. And it makes sense. It makes complete sense because the things that sort of come up from our own imaginations need a, a means of expression. And if you look at the earth, I mean, there's so many things we can see, but there's so much we can't see that we just, as you implied through our senses, that we feel that we're feeling into the experience. And I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with that, but it felt right to say. <laughs> there is so much about the mind and the emotions that really are somewhat beyond words. And it is one of the things that David Abrams spoke about in his book, and that was language. Abram talks a lot about how we experience the world through our senses in the same way that Joseph Campbell did. We spoke about that in when we did the hero's journey early back, go back, you can listen to those. Language is a way for us to communicate the experiences that we have. So for instance, I could create a scene. I could say that I stepped into the woods and the scent of the air was filled with a combination of moist mulch and emerging greenery, that the sky was blue and filled with fluffy clouds and the air was damp as it touched my skin. So many words about my senses that I am sharing. But they're words that I'm sharing about my experience because they're common words that we use to be able to communicate something that our senses feel. But if I said the orange tasted so sweet, everybody has an idea of what sweet means, but nobody can ever have the same taste of that orange that I am having. And this is what they're talking about as far as senses and emotions. Imagine not having a language for us to communicate what that felt like, but rather I would have to hand you that orange or take you into the woods without any words whatsoever and let you experience it in order for me to communicate on an emotional and mental level what that experience is. So. He speaks about free language and how language has impacted the way that we communicate our emotions and our senses and what we feel based on common words that we all understand. But sometimes, I don't know about you and Sherry, you love words, you talk about it a lot here. And it seems that when I read your work, you always seem to pick out the most amazing words, but they're still. Uh, they land on the eyes and body of the reader to interpret them. Absolutely. I remember someone once saying that it's never what the, what the artist intended. It's only what the artist achieved. And so, and that is per absolutely the responsibility of the receiver of that. I think it's interesting because when we talk about language, we tend to talk about words, but language is everywhere. Body language 
you know, there's so many different ways of communicating. And if we were to reduce down that everything is a language that we just need to learn in order to communicate clearly with others, whether it's through words, whether it's through actions, whether it's through our body or eyes, you know, our thoughts that create vibrations, whatever it may be. One of my daughters studies ASL, American Sign Language, and that's got a whole other kind of vibration. And it's American Sign Language, different than other types of sign language. And you can do the alphabet, you know, spell the words, or there are words for the words. There are, you know, mudras for the word. And I think that that's really interesting. And you said something yesterday off of, off of air when you were talking about the language of massage and how some would, I'm going to let you say it because I don't know the dorsi, the trapezius, the back and the neck and like all the shit. <laughs> I know the other stuff, but you know, the different ways that teachers can communicate in the language of the common experience or the language of the specific art, craft, science, whatever it is. I know, and I'll, I'll throw that to you in a second. You know, if someone's really good at computers and they talk in the computer language to someone who is not so good at computers, what is that? Is that just because they don't know how to explain it in plain English? or I shouldn't say English, in plain words, whatever the language is? Or is it an ego thing that, you know, I'm just going to use all the big words and, you know, if you don't know them, you're an idiot. You know, that kind of thing. We tend to, you know, in, in yoga even, if I'm talking to someone who's not a yogi and I start using Sanskrit, I'm an asshole, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you, there's a way of kind of putting it in there, but it can't be the only way of communication. So whatever that's worth. But I, I love what you said about the body, if you want to, you know, give that as also a metaphor for language. So I was talking about when we're teaching sequences to massage therapists, especially new massage therapists, and all of the different ways that people can learn was where our conversation started, whether we're auditory learners or visual learners or kinesthetic learners. And in teaching, you and I were talking about how blending and layering all of those different ways of teaching is a really effective way to speak to a variety of different students. And when I was teaching in massage school, I taught technique and I also taught musculoskeletal anatomy, among other things. And I always wondered because I would observe other teachers, and this is not a judgment, but I would observe them. And as they would be talking about the sequence on the back, they would say, okay, so we're going to place our hands up on the shoulders and glide down the center of the back, across to the outer edges, drag the hands back up and end at the base of the head. And that is really a really great way to give an instruction and a great way to start with a brand new student. But the transition then can simply happen to, we place our hands at the base of the occiput with our fingers on the suboccipitals and the upper trapezius. And as our hand glides down the trapezius, we can feel the erector spinae alongside the spine uh, as the deeper muscles coming across the iliac crest, back up the lateral side of the body, and again, returning to the base of the occiput, right? So that what we're doing is as that student is touching each and every part of the body and learning the sequence, they hear the words rather than this idea that we need to then go, and we do have to have this other class, but that all the learning of the terminology and the placement of these different muscles isn't left to memorization, to just reading very dry information and expecting people to retain it. I loved everything you just said. And watching you, watching you was a total trip because when you were talking about just the plain language, you were very academic about it. When you started using the language of anatomy, it was like you were reading erotic poetry. It was like you were embodying this, this experience of each one of these sensory, you know, touch. It was just, it was so clear that that's the poetry of the body, you know, and it's, it's not essential that we know all the terminology, but when we do know some of it, 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 language is vibration like anything else, like the earth is vibration. And, you know, I don't want to veer too far from Manamaya, though I don't think we have, but just to kind of keep that, that energy whirling around it, that there's so much potential creativity with this, this Manamaya, the mind, the thoughts, the experience, the, the senses, it just, it's, I love this because it brings, it brings dimensions to the things that we already think we know. 
you know, that we can have layers. We can have like, we're taught koshas are layers, but we live in such a, an either or society, uh, you know, ones and zeros, binary code, like it's either this or that. But when we, when we look at things through the lens of the koshas, um, like you said, we can't compartmentalize them. They are not separate entities in and of themselves, even though they can still maintain a unique flavor, they will always have, you know, little sensors out to the others. Yeah. I mean, in, in the story that I told about the therapist, it, it, it didn't go far from Manamaya Kosha. We were using our senses. Yeah. They were using their sense of touch yeah. as they were. And the person on the table is also a therapist. So they were feeling um, what their therapist was touching. They were both feeling it. So it was learning from both the giver for both the giver and the receiver through the senses, sense of touch and hearing and sight. They were watching where their hands were going on the body and also the mind, uh, because when we're working, we're trying to interpret all of those sensations. Like, is the tissue under my hands healthy? Is it dry? Is it stuck? Is it adherent? Is it hypertonic? There's all these great words, but we want to know where to come back and focus our more detailed attention by interpreting the data we are feeling with our hands throughout the, the whole experience. So um, Madamaya Kosha, it's an interpretation. And you're creating memories for the person on the table and the person touching the body on the table. And it goes right into our tissues. Like our, it, the memory doesn't just live in the brain, it lives in every cell of our body. We've got muscular memory. We've got cellular memory. We've got so many different kinds of memory. And, you know, I, I used to think that, you know, when I would stand in Tadasana, which is mountain pose, the idea of a mountain as someone who writes poetry, I don't always love poetry, but I do write quite a bit of it, or I used to, but the idea of the mountain, you know, that why is it called mountain and what is a mountain? And, you know, we've talked about a mountain is, you know, it's still, but there's still movement on there. There's, you know, rivers and there's birds and nests and animals and all sorts of stuff. But mountains, unlike the flowing of the river, which is in constant motion and flow and in constant sort of regeneration and, and change and permanence, the mountain is kind of, you know, the witness of everything. It is, it is there. It will change slightly. And, you know, depending on different ages that the earth goes through, yeah, there's, there's that bigger picture. But in our lifetimes and in the lifetimes of many of our ancestors and the ones who are coming, these mountains... They're the big witnesses. They've gotten to experience uh, all of the history that we interpret and talk about and whatever. And I just imagine somewhere there's an energy in the mountain that's kind of giggling a little bit at us, like <laughs> silly humans or, you know, you silly animals on two legs. But there's that mountain. <laughs> a little step into the science corner, right? Because you mentioned that we have all of these receptors and that each and every cell has its own memory and memory and experience is not limited to what the brain interprets, which I also think is something that could go down into a really deep rabbit hole for me to find out more about that. But within the fascia are all kinds of receptors. That's why we call it is sometimes referred to as a sensory organ, or it can be referred to as the organ of communication because of what lives within that system in our body. And those, and some, you may have heard some of these words before, but they're the uh, the proprioceptors. They tell us where we are in space as we're navigating through our homes or we're navigating out in nature, just the simple process of moving from place to place. We are engaging those proprioceptors and our interoceptors. They're going to tell us what's going on inside. Like, am I hungry? Do I have to pee? Do I have to evacuate? Like, what's going on? Is my heart racing or am I calm? There's all of this data. We, you know, I began by talking about all the data out on earth, the trees and the mountains. And the quote that I won't go back, it was at the beginning, but the quote about all of nature. But then we have that same sensory information that we collect and then is processed so quickly so that the body can make choices, right? If we're out in a place that our senses are telling us we're in danger, 
our body is going to react in a certain way. The mind is going to start to process like, oh my gosh, there's danger and start to make changes within our body to react, to move, to get out of where the, the situation we're in, whatever that is. So it's, it's in real time. I see something that I feel is danger. The hair on the back of my neck stands up and my body says, run and get out of here. It's, it's so, so quick. Uh, this idea that our senses and all of this information is both stored in memories throughout our entire body, but also in our ability to make quick decisions to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. And you also went into something, I can't remember what it was, but you were talking, oh, you were talking about the mountain. And so yesterday I found this image and I can't remember who the artist is. I'm sorry, but it is a picture of a fairy and the fairy is standing up next to a tree, but the tree has a little bit of a human form and the branches are resting on her shoulders. And as soon as I looked at it, I just remembered Demeter. Go back. Demeter is uh, the the goddess that I named my tree when I was at Kripalu for my mindfulness outdoor experience. And still to this day, which is, I mean, that sounds like it was a long time ago. It was only a few months ago. But when I am maybe feeling a little edgy or need to calm down, on my walk with Siva, there are pine trees. And I will stop by the pine tree and put my back up against it in the same way that I did when I sat at my sit spot with Demeter. And instantly, when my back touches bark, I'm almost transported back into that feeling of calm that I experienced in that sit spot for the 14 days in a row that I went there and placed my, my bark, my skin against her bark. Yeah, that is, I love that. And I love that Demeter came back. I had gone through and I, was, I went on to do some, some research about mythology, about stories, cultural sort of mythological tales that had something to do with Manamaya Kosha and the earth. And I don't know where all that research is. <laughs> it's somewhere in the ethers. But Demeter and Persephone came up as one of the stories. So I thought of you and I was like, oh, how perfect. And now I don't know where the fuck it is. But mm -hmm. there was also, there were... Oh, there were Aztec stories. There were Hindu stories. There were so many, you know, there's so much opportunity to mine the world for data, not just, you know, ones and zeros and, you know, what we would get from some kind of academic treatise, but for through the stories. And that's what we want to do here is to sort of mine our stories for these connections, for these, you know, poetic ways of, you know, now looking at the world. And, and then taking responsibility for our place in the world, which goes back to that, that mindset thing. <laughs> and, and learning each other's languages, you know, as you said before about, you know, all the different language that, you know, if we are so concerned with how we are doing and how what we're saying, we stop listening. And when we stop listening, we stop learning. And so the reason this is kind of coming up is I'm looking out my window now and every single day when I look out this window, there's a pond across the street. I, I assess my own space. Where am I today? How can I look at the world through a fresh lens? Is the pond clear? Is it clearly reflective or is it a little bit, you know, kind of muddled and, you know, or low or high or whatever the things are. But nature is the perfect mirror to reflect not only the state of our own mind, the state of our own sensory experience. Because you walk out in nature, every sense is there available to, to our sentient being. And so, like Teresa, you've always said, where is your attention? What are, you, what are you being drawn to? Well, that can be visual. It can be what are you hearing? What are you smelling? Any of those senses. And nature has it all. So for any way that we might be looking for healing of our own physical bodies, of our own you know, emotional bodies in any way that we might want to be inspired to create something, whether it's, you know, on paper or, or not, whatever that is, we can get our cues by putting our feet on the ground and allowing nature to, to tell us. But sometimes we have to ask, sometimes you'd be like, Hey, what do you got for me today? You know? Show me something. And yeah. <laughs> so just as an aside in my shower, it's, I've got marble on the wall. 
And I see faces in this marble all the time and new faces sometimes come up. There are certain standard ones that I see all the time and they're ones I'll discover be like, I, where'd you come from? So I have a friend who's a psychic medium and I told her about this and I was like, I just I feel like there was one particular day I was in the shower and I was like, they want something from me. I don't know what it is, but I, I just, or they're trying to communicate something. And she looked at me, she said, ask them. I say, what are you here for? Why are you here? Like, what do you want from me? What do you, what can I learn? What, like ask the question. I'm not sure what I heard back, uh, but it was, it just, it was a reminder that when we do see something that is not animate that we may feel the impulse to anthropomorphize in some way, you know, like, you know, like the AI thinking and like our dogs are, are feeling or whatever it is. But that sounds so data too. It's like, what, what do I need from this? And, but not to be attached to the outcome or the answer or lack thereof. Yes. Yes. Getting the practice of non-attachment. That's also going back to our previous uh, yoga eat, but the practice of non-attachment is sometimes really difficult to stay present. And I guess that might be another lesson from, from the earth um, that we live in is that each moment is changing. The weather changes, the seasons change, even our viewpoint. It, we can stand completely still in one place, no matter where we are with our eyes open. And the data that our body is bringing in, that different relevant stimuli, is ever-changing. Um, Absolutely. From, yeah. From a bird that flew by to an ant that's crawling on the ground or just how the air is moving at that particular moment. Yeah. And we get to, to practice that through the cycles of nature. So here we have memory as a cycle. Just as the earth grows, goes through cycles of growth and decay, memories can be seen as part of a cycle of remembering and forgetting. And that's from the Atlantic. And another one is a reminder of the impermanence of all things. The cycles of birth, growth, death, and rebirth that we see in nature can remind us of the impermanence of all things. That comes from Nature's Cycles, A Lesson in Impermanence by T. Johnson. But just another way to kind of see how the earth is our teacher and that if we pay attention, we can begin to practice the impermanence piece by just even witnessing it, by seeing the, the seasons change, by seeing the leaves fall by seeing the branches bare. And like you said earlier, the little budlets beginning to open. And you know, that 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 next part, the rebirth, this renaissance of spring that we are, that we're in right now. And we could choose to live our lives or not choose, just be, a, you know, an automaton and just kind of go through and buy all the stories that were sold and just have to work until we die and, you know, hard and, and shit that whatever it is that we're sold. And maybe it's different from each culture and each family, or we can begin to do those deep dives and say, Hey, the big teacher's mother nature. She knows better than any of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A quote from the book is that non-human nature can be perceived and experienced with far more intensity and nuance. So some things are right there and others, we need the time to like rest back. And that goes back to, you know what I'm saying? Notice what you notice. You know, if anybody who's listening has ever taken a yoga class with me and my classes are very, very slow. I want to help because most of the time when people come to my classes, they have some sort of discomfort in their body. Maybe they have all out pain, who knows, but I like listening to the body whisper so you never have to hear it scream. And with this nuance, sometimes when we're moving quickly, we can move some, we can move beyond and miss some of the more subtle communication that comes through those receptors within our body. And in slower movement, and I'm not saying it's the only way, but it definitely, in my opinion, these slow movements of understanding where the discomfort is in the body. And when I say that some people come with discomfort and pain, it might be interpreted that that means that it's all physical, but sometimes it's the story the body's holding at a specific place that we are moving, that maybe it's the place that that memory of a trauma is being held or that memory of the most exciting time that you've ever had. We don't only hold certain stories in our body, we hold many. But when moving with slow nuances of noticing and then giving ourselves permission to slow down, 
and experience whatever is being held there, whether it is a physical discomfort or creating the space to experience that emotion. When we move on to our more brisk classes or our movement practices that have a little bit more speed or our sun salutations or going out jogging or any other thing that you have to do, once we develop that keen sense of the information our body is trying to share, the story our body is holding and trying to share back with us, we are able to maybe process something that we stored because it was too too hard to experience at the same time at, at the time that it happened. So we kind of stuck it in our body somewhere and said, I'll get to you later, you know? So my question to anybody listening is if I asked you the question, where do you hold your stress? Where are you going to point to on your body? And most people that I ask that question to, they all have a place to point to. It's very rare that somebody doesn't point to a place on their body when asked that question. And the follow-up question is, why did you put it there? You know, and so much of what you do is you offer the opportunity to learn our own language of our own body, because, you know, I know even as a yoga student and practitioner and teacher, there was a lot about my body I didn't understand and still don't understand. And so if I feel something or experience something, I still may not be able to communicate it nor may I be able to identify this subconscious piece that did the holding. Because it's very rare that it's like, oh, I'm going to put it here. It happens as a result of, you know, other, like I had a teacher who once said that, and again, I got to say teacher, it's anecdotal. I don't know the source, but that we create 64 karmas in the snap of a finger because there are like all these receptors that we have that we don't see or know or are conscious of that are taking in information, but many of those karmas are purified just as fast. But then there are those that need to be worked on and whatever shadow work we're gonna do, blah, 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 blah. Um, but so this idea of understanding, so, and then, and then buying our own story. So I used to say that I had a colony of knots that lived under my left shoulder blade for years, and it did. And it was a story I told myself and it was still, I always, I did it for the laugh. It was like, yeah, yeah, I was the, I could just throw them back there because that would give me the ability to live a free spirited life. Because if anything was too stressful, I'd just put it in there. I wasn't deliberately or consciously putting anything there. It was just a recognition that, oh, this is where I'm feeling some tension. This is, this must be where I'm storing that. And so I'm telling a story, whether or not that's the truth. And then over time, I was like, oh my God, I feel liberated. It's gone. It's done. And then I had some body work the other day and I was like, oh, there are some hanger honors. There are some residual people. And I started thinking of the lost colony of Roanoke. Uh, that's, you can Google it. It's, uh, it's a thing and a conspiracy and whatever. It's just a fun story. But I kept thinking, oh, the lost colony of Roanoke, found them, found them. They're under my shoulder blade. But since I stopped telling myself that story and the story that I had changed it to was, yeah, I used to. Then what I did was I no longer paid attention and there was still work to be done there. So even though I don't feel the same limitation there, uh, it doesn't mean that the story's over. <laughs> it just means that I need to, you know, remember to take another look. Yeah, I mean, you said that, you know, sometimes you just can't explain it, but you feel it. And I think that's all, everything about Monomaya Kosha. Some things are just felt. It's this, um, the orange, the orange. It's the orange, the um, sweet orange. It's, you know, I, I can feel, I can taste it, but you don't know what I'm feeling or tasting. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just experience things through our senses. And that is for me, Manamaya Kosha. It is having this literacy of feelings to be able to. Literacy of feelings. That was beautiful. Let's talk about language for a moment. Okay, sorry. That's okay. Literacy of, oh my God. Yeah, so that's, I think for me, Manamaya Kosha. It's the experience and being okay with it. And also maybe the recognition that, you know, and I'll say this in my class at times too. It's, and I use it as heart brain. You talked about that connection earlier in this episode and previously as well. And, you know, listening to those to the heart, listening to those sensations. Sometimes we just know that our heart says, 
yes, 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 this is a good idea. There are things we want to do and every cell in your body is going, yes, 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 this is right. That's the emotion. That's the feelings. That's, you know, we just know it. It's a felt sense that is undeniable. The mind, however, is sometimes the mind does what the mind does. And our brain wants us to be prepared. So even though the heart is saying, yes, 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 do it, we know the brain might still be saying, well, did you think about that? And what about this <laughs> thing? And there was a time in my life that when the brain would start giving me all those questions, like, well, did you think about this? And what if this goes wrong? And what if that goes wrong? And did you plan for this? That I would think I was trying to talk myself out of it. And you just mentioned mindset of changing the mindset of the story of your colony underneath your shoulder blade. My mindset had to shift at that point to say, thank you, brain, for helping me to be prepared for the decision my heart has made. Oh, and I love that. Different story that says, I can trust what I feel. I, our senses and how we experience the world through those senses is our first form of communication. It is the place that we collect all the data. And then our words and our processing takes over. It's our second language of communication. So maybe as just as if I tried to learn another language and I would say to somebody, but that's not my first language, the understanding would be, well, okay, so she might mispronounce a word or the context of which she has created a sentence might be out of order. There would be acceptable mistakes that maybe were there just because it's not my first language. But when I shifted to my emotion, my senses are my first language and the feelings that they elicit are my first language and words and how my brain processes it. And I share that information with you is my second language. Let's take a moment to reflect that. So I, do, I think the mind is a trickster. And that's something that I'm going to, after this, I know it's not in preparation for, but in terms of the, the mythologies, there were some trickster tales in there and I need to go back and take a look. But it is the mind that tries to rationalize things. And I say like in and out of favor, according to our will. And the will for me goes right to Manipura chakra. Like that's where we begin to you know, peel away from our tribal experience and become more of you know fully who we are. But there's still this, this will that can override. And you think, Manipura is just under Anahata, the heart chakra. So there's, you know, I, I'm always very curious about the order of things, even when we can go in any direction and we can, you know, if our mind takes us or we, we, our attention goes to one over the other. So I look at Manamaya Kosha is sandwiched between Pranamaya Kosha and Vignanamaya Kosha. So the energy body, the vital body and the wisdom body. So if we're, and I also read somewhere that Pranayama is a really good, the breath work is a good way to help balance Manamaya Kosha or to come into some sort of sense of, you know, harmony with it. And so, of course, we start with Anamaya. We have to start with the actual physical body. But if I'm just looking at the two on either side, it's really very interesting to me, this idea of like vitality moving into our, our emotional sensory thinking body. It sort of takes a little bit of a journey so that we can get to wisdom that there's something about that journey that is drawing us to the wisdom, even if we're going the other way, there's still the reciprocity going on. And ultimately we go for the bliss, which we're not talking about. So, you know, if you're ever in a transformational system or process, be curious about where you are in that process and what proceeds and what comes after what you're doing. So don't forget that we still have an Earth Day event coming up. And if you want to find out more information about it, just go to anecdotal anatomy backslash Earth Day and all the details for how Sherry and I can spend the day with you and you can spend the day with all of our Keystone members and go out and honor the Earth. So don't forget anecdotal anatomy backslash Earth Day. And if you're looking to put into practice some things that will help uh, reveal some of the things that we talk about here, do a couple of sun salutations. They don't have to be full ones. You don't have to go all the way to the ground. Um, and you can Google if you don't know, you know, just standing in your spot. But as you move, inhaling, taking your arms up, 
when you get to the top, you have an option for a little bit of a back bend there. And as you exhale, you fold, you hinge from the hips, you come down into a forward fold, then you come up halfway and hinge from the hips. Exhale, fold, you can come all the way back up with a flat back or come into a plank, hold it for as long as you want, lower all the way down, come into a cobra, sphinx or upward dog, and then into down dog and then walk up into Tadasana. But as you're doing it, to imagine, to feel what is it that your body is experiencing. So often if we're in a class and we're moving through the simple sun salutations, that there's, there's a feeling of movement, but there's not always a feeling of or an experience of relationship to it. So we synchronize our breath with the movement as part of the experience. So notice how that, that shifts your own energy, the vitality piece. And then get into the sensory experience of feeling the air around your body, whatever the smells in the space. And as you come down to the ground, I know when I lower down to the ground, I got a few dust bunnies to contend with, you know, and move into a back bend. What does it feel to come into a heart opener and then exhale back into a different shape? So to have the sensory experience and to make it a deliberate practice of Manamaya Kosha. And then when you're done, and if you're doing a Shavasana or if you're just standing there afterwards, you know, see if you can feel where there might be a new sense of wisdom arising. Not that it has to be there, but something bubbling that's arising from the experience of doing this deliberately through Manamaya Kosha. Because they say that yoga, meditation, pranayama, all of these things are helpful in clarifying and balancing Manamaya Kosha. Well, next time, we'll be talking about wisdom. So, until next time. See you then. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.